Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today you're in for a real treat because I have Joseph Davis. Joseph is the Chief Security Advisor at Microsoft. He's got a fascinating background and a variety of careers that you typically don't see in our space or in his space. So, Joseph, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks, Tom, for having me this morning. Joseph, could you tell us about both your academic and your professional background? Sure. My academic background is around psychology and biology, and then I I spent time as a medical practitioner, as a physician. And my professional background is is almost 100% IT and cybersecurity. I moved from not being very happy in the in the medical profession and moved into cybersecurity right after that because it was basically my first interest as a child. So were you in sort of healthcare life sciences, but in the cybersecurity and tech side as well? To an extent. So I never really stopped as, you know, as a kid, I was very, very interested in computer science. And, and as far as you could take it back in those days, uh, internet working, if you will. When I moved into biology and psychology and, the, and then later medicine, I continued to use or be involved with you know, technology from that perspective. And uh, so much so that when I was in medical school, I was involved in, a, in a, uh, developing a program that helped clinicians uh, diagnose or more accurately diagnose their patients. What's the role of cybersecurity in the healthcare and life science industry today? It's incredibly important because uh, healthcare and life sciences is considered uh, critical infrastructure because we're keeping people alive. We're improving patient outcomes. It doesn't matter if we're payer provider or shipping vaccines. I mean, they're all critical functions, keeping people alive, keeping people healthy. And when cybersecurity is mixed in with that, we want to ensure that you know our systems, our processes, our patients are safe and are not affected by cybersecurity attacks. Joseph, when we were visiting prior to the start of this podcast, you used a term I'm not familiar with, and it was connected medical device security. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, it it leans more towards safety than security, although it started in the security realm. Connected medical devices are any medical devices that might use some sort form of communication like Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, connected TCP, IP, infrared, etc. And most medical devices today do have those components in them, and which means you can basically affect, if there are any vulnerabilities in those protocols or vulnerabilities in the applications or operating systems that run those devices, you can negatively affect the outcome of the functioning of that medical device. The solar winds attack that became public late last year, I think, awakened the eyes of many in the corporate world. And I was wondering, in the more broad corporate world, did it also have the same impact on healthcare and life sciences, or was that a little more well-known all along? No, I think it's a, it was a good wake-up call. You know, healthcare and life sciences, they've been trying to wrap, especially providers, have been trying to wrap their heads around supply chain for many, many years in terms of vetting the software and the hardware that's coming into their clinical environments. Many times they don't, they don't have the staff to do that. We see larger agencies being able to do that especially on the government side, like the VA, et cetera. But smaller healthcare organizations don't really have the staff to do things like review lines and lines of assembler code or you know, ask for source code of the programs that they're using to manage their systems or applications. 
and therefore supply chain attacks are, are incredibly difficult to detect at that level. And it remains a big concern for healthcare providers, especially. Joseph, you've been both a director of information security and a chief information security officer. I was wondering if you could describe what job skills those jobs require. Yeah, it's diplomacy, flexibility, humility, you know, the ability to speak the language of the business to provide business value and also be as technical as you can possibly be because it's advantageous for you so that you're not really affected by any fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? That, that sometimes vendors will bring in with them. You, you can see through the, the fog, if you will. And diplomacy, I think, being the biggest because it enables you to really bridge that gap that most organizations have between compliance and legal, HR, and, and all the individuals and all the business units and departments that have to really be aware of and take part in protecting their own uh, organization. I heard at least four separate stakeholder groups in that statement, and let me see if I can articulate those. The first is senior management, perhaps even the board of directors. The second is your business colleagues, the ones at your level where uh, you mentioned uh, learning the business. A third is your customers who are your employees, the internal employees. And then fourth is outside vendors. First of all, is that a fair assessment? And if it is, that seems like a wide range of groups to have discussions with. Yeah, cybersecurity is and compliance are going to, it's going to affect almost every department. And I can think of scenarios and, and case studies where it has. And especially in the last several years when you had to bring legal into the tech world to really fulfill the requirements of the GDPR the, or other data privacy laws in the jurisdictions in which we were doing business. And the other thing, too, is that when you have an incident, especially like the SolarWinds incident or even some other issues that we've had recently with things like the exchange vulnerability, you have to have them aware. You have to have those different functions available if there needs to be communication to the outside world or to the internal customer being the employee. We have to have everyone on board ahead of time before these things happen because they ultimately will happen. Many of my audience is in a different type of compliance than you, anti-corruption compliance. But in that type of compliance, your highest risk is third parties. And it sounds like at least one of the very high vulnerabilities and risk you're talking about in cybersecurity compliance is vulnerabilities in the supply chain. How do you educate senior management and even the board to the risks and then provide to them in a manner they understand a mitigation plan or a plan to manage those risks? It's been a lot easier over the last 10 years because many of the CEOs sit on boards where they're working with other CEOs and senior leaders who have encountered risks to the organization, including supply chain risks. And especially if you're in the manufacturing, medical device manufacturing realm, more specifically, you've been prized to supply chain risk for some time because if you think about if there's a lack of plastics or if there's a lack of a certain metal that you need or a certain type of circuitry that you need, it's going to affect your production of a, a particular device or the efficacy of the device itself, right? It's affected by some supply chain problem, some imperfection in the supplies that you're receiving to create your product. It's the same thing in cybersecurity. And what we typically do is when we're having those conversations with individuals at the senior level who understand those risks to their supplier, their value chain, 
it's much easier to explain, hey, we could have the same problem with things like connected medical devices. We could have the same problem with software that we're acquiring and so forth. You mentioned data privacy and you named, of course, GDPR. When I talk to uh, many corporate types around those issues, they're not afraid of those issues. They're frustrated that here in the United States, there's really no national law they can point to, no national set of standards. We have 50 states and you know we may have 50 different uh, laboratories to explore that. And of course, we have GDPR. Is that same conversation going on in cybersecurity or are there a set of standards that you or a CISO can look to for some comfort, NIST or ISO or something else when they deal with supply chain vendors? Sure, there are benchmarks around understanding privacy, but it really leans very, very heavily on the model clauses and the the other language that that's put into these agreements, right? The biggest challenge I've had formerly as a CISO with respect to data privacy is convincing my suppliers that they're data processors or data controllers. Many of them come to us and they say, oh, there's no way we could see your data. And then you, you open up a support ticket with a telecom provider and ask them for a full data packet capture. And you're, you're receiving data packet capture with specialized personal information in it because that's the kind of information you're transacting over your MPLS network or something to that effect. So that's one example. There are vendors that will basically, they've gone through this before they understand it, and they will sign up for those those model clauses in the MSA. And then there are others that you, you really have to convince that they're participating in a data privacy regulation they might not even be aware of. You mentioned that you had an academic interest in psychology and behavioral psychology. You also are at least a blogger and I think a prolific blogger. And you wrote a really interesting article entitled Ego and the Role of Cybersecurity Leaders. I was wondering, first of all, how that was a great title. But what did you uh, led you to want to explain to people why you have to take ego out of the equation? I like to serve Humbly, because really, if the focus is on you being the CISO yourself in your career, and you're basically climbing the ladder, I don't feel that you're really serving your constituents, meaning the focus really needs to be on protecting the organization and safety, right? So, and I, I quote in that article, I talk about scenarios that may affect critical infrastructure that have real life and safety implications, And I think when we're so focused on where we are in our career, we're so focused on what kind of certifications we have, we're focused on on trying to be the smartest person in the room or argue that we know more, we have more connections in the cybersecurity community. I think our focus gets distorted. I think it gets cloudy and we're not really focused on the right thing. Talk to multiple people who are in the general profession you are. And if I could generalize to the one thing you all seem to have in common, it's keep calm and cybersecurity on. You're really calm. And could you explain why that is so helpful and indeed necessary in the role you have? Yeah, it's huge. And one of the things I think I've been pretty good at is during these massive breaches and or compromise situations I've been in where it's affecting production or it's affecting data privacy, I think you have to keep a cool head. And it goes back to my, my training as a, you know, a medical clinician, if you will, in the ER or in the OR, is that you know, bad things will happen. You have to be flexible. You have to be calm. You have to understand that 
some things are beyond you, but the things that you can control, control lightly and make sure that you're cognizant that you're working with a team of people who also have emotions and have skin in the game and are getting scared and are getting upset. You have to try and manage them as well. In one other article you posted, you had the line, quote, every trust decision is a risk management exercise, end quote. I've never heard it phrased that quite that way, but I was wondering if we could explore that phrase. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking about it in, in terms of everyday life. You know, I woke up this morning and poured myself a cup of coffee. I, I am trusting that the water I'm using to create that coffee doesn't have some toxic chemical in it or the coffee itself has been manufactured correctly, produced correctly, right? And it's not going to make me ill. If I walk outside, I trust that the drivers and vehicles around me are going to follow the law and, and or ethics and not <laughs> run me over on the sidewalk. So really, every decision I'm making throughout the day is based on my trust of the outside world. And I think every decision really is a risk decision. You can go over it a thousand times in your head, but, but at the same time, a lot of these become autonomic, meaning we just make these decisions and we trust by default. But some of these larger decisions and these decisions that we used to make around what software are we going to use, what technology, what hardware we're going to use, we have to start making more informed decisions around that and really weighing the risks. Joseph, could you tell us your current role at Microsoft? Sure. I'm the chief security advisor for health and life sciences for the U.S. I basically cover payer provider, any lab, medical device and supplies company, any pharmaceutical company. So could you tell us what is the Microsoft security solution area? What's its role and what's your role in that? So its role is to give our customers a better understanding of exactly what the Microsoft uh, services are provided around, you know, cybersecurity and compliance and identity. My role is to work exclusively with senior leaders at each of one of my customers to bring them up to speed on modern workplace and how we're approaching cybersecurity in this more hybrid environment that we're living in now. I really couldn't tell from the description that I was able to research. Are you guys like a worldwide troubleshooting group? Are you customer liaison? Are you the big picture guys? Or are you the guys that come in and just solve the big problems or perhaps some or all of those? It's some of those, right? But more of the liaison and the and the big picture folks, we try and explain to our customers and help them with uh, growing out of more of a legacy approach to cybersecurity and compliance and bring them up to speed on what we're doing now. Many of the interviews I do with people like yourself, they are having, if not initial discussions with boards of directors, perhaps early stage discussions on some of the challenges uh, that their company may face in cybersecurity. It seems to me that your discussions are uh, directly with either CISOs or people who are past that early stage and are perhaps looking for a more sophisticated or mature approach to cybersecurity. Would that be a fair assessment? It's varied. Some of them are looking for a modern approach and others are entrenched in the way things have been done for the last 20, 30 years. And, you know, it's kind of a combination. We've got Companies who are, you know, at the bleeding edge and companies who are very reluctant to change. So I come out of the corporate legal department where we've always done it that way was, if not a formal policy, it was certainly a byword. And I always thought that the uh, IT group was a little more forward thinking than that. But listening to you now, perhaps companies, even in IT, really do 
stick with that approach. And I don't guess I would be out of school by suggesting to you that that approach in 2021 and going forward is, if not disaster in waiting, it's certainly that train has left the station. Yeah, absolutely. And many of my colleagues who have served in the military talk about fighting the last war, right? So if you look at the evolution of warfare, it's advanced rapidly. And that's the problem with many of the customers that, that we have currently is that their approach is fighting the last attack or the last type of compromise that they had, whereas our threat actors are constantly evolving and finding new ways in. We have a number of specific approaches to preventing and detecting and those types of things. And what we're trying to do is, is really preach to our customers about how Microsoft is fulfilling that requirement, how uh, more of the successful customers that we have are fulfilling that requirement and trying to encourage our customers to come up to speed on that approach. It's interesting we talk about veterans and ex-military because I interview a fair number of those folks particularly in your field, and they are some of the most forward-thinking because they've seen those threats, and they saw those threats evolve during their careers in the military, and they saw a robust response by the U.S. military. Do you see that in the public sector as well? Well, I don't see a robust response, and that's the problem. Usually the thing that gets responses when a publicly traded company uh, that wants to continuously you know, earn profit quarter after quarter, they get compromised or something you know, affects their reputation in the industry, or maybe they're unable to ship product for several days. So that usually gets the attention of the board and the CEO and the, and the more senior leaders in the company. And then they, they look back down into either IT or wherever their cybersecurity function happens to live and ask them what's going on and how are we approaching these modern threats. When the Solar Winds hack was announced last, at least I think in Q4 of last year, it seemed to me to be a huge wake-up call for companies in the public sector, particularly around their third parties. Did that message resonate in the public sector, and has it made that type of threat more aware to the people you talk to? It's a mixed bag again, right? Some understand the threat and are trying modern approaches to handle the threat. Others are just trying to get along day-to-day, really based on their funding and their budget. Right. So we, we've got some customers who don't have enough staff to really keep up with the risk assessments that are required in acquiring third party product services, software, et cetera. So that's really a challenge in the industry. And uh, the threat actors, especially state sponsored, they realize that. And that's why they're taking advantage of that. Years ago, I had the opportunity to interview the then CISO at Coca-Cola. And he talked about a, a layered approach to cybersecurity. And then he kind of wound up by saying, but, you know, there's really only one thing I have to protect. You know what it is. I know what it is. The bad guys know what it is. And not all of our resources, but the majority of our resources are really designed to protect the keys to the kingdom. Is that type of approach still valid? It is still valid. We always say, you know, encryption is the last bastion of cybersecurity, meaning that you have to protect the data because that is the action on objective for the state sponsored or other threat actor, right? So I'm not breaking into a network in order to just look around and have fun. I'm usually looking for some sort of monetary gain or some access to data that's going to bring me to the next level, like typical criminals do, right? You want a data asset. So if that data asset is um, unavailable, even though it's accessible to you, you can't decrypt it, makes it that much more challenging to the threat actor, right? So the defense in depth is is a great approach. 
But we're also looking at identity because what we've seen is, you know, attackers these days, they're not really breaking in as much as logging on. And that really brings up the next point I wanted to raise, which is around employees and education. Are employees still one of the greatest risks for a threat actor to access a system? And is education around that, if that's true, is education still one of the most powerful tools available? I think education is important, but I think we need, from an industry perspective, to get out of the blame the victim kind of mentality that we have about our employees, because these are sophisticated threat actors who are well-trained in social engineering and con jobs, if you will. So it's fairly easy for them to disguise themselves as sheep or wolf in sheep's clothing, I should say. The problem really needs to be looked at from a machine learning point of view and understanding what is valid or not valid before it even gets to the user, because you can't rely on the user to be your last line of defense. But is the user one of those lines of defense, whether it perhaps is first or second as well? Yeah, I would say second or third, potentially. I mean, you have to educate your employee base. You have to make sure folks are aware and that everyone is responsible for cybersecurity. So those common mistakes are not made. But I always feel that, you know, computer-aided recommendations and suggestions, especially in the email interface, go a long way. Case in point, if someone's sending something confidential and they're not encrypting it or using the technologies that are right in front of them, they're either preventing from sending it, prevented from sending it, or they're, you know, there's a tool tip that pops up to say, you might want to protect it or label it in the following way so that it gets the appropriate rights management. Has your approach to cybersecurity changed over the past year, really during the height of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think our customers' approach has changed. Uh, My approach has remained steady, I would say, for the last six or seven years, where I, I understood that you have to assume compromise. You have to assume that every corporate network is almost like a public network at this point, and there really is no safe space. So the last bastion of security has got to be data encryption, And really, you have to focus on identity protection. Now, with the work-from-home scenarios, that's brought to the surface even more so because many of our customers before the pandemic hit didn't really have a great work-from-home approach from a technology side, right? A lot of VPN, a lot of hairpinning, as we call it in the industry, where all data flows go back to a central location and many, many um, agents and security components on the endpoint that just doesn't work anymore because the, the security components on the endpoint slow the user down. The hairpinning of traffic back to a central location slows the user down if they're working from a remote location. So the modern approach is SSL directly to any kind of cloud application or SSL directly to any on-prem application proxied through a cloud provider. Even in my corporate career, which ended in the now two decades ago, Uh, I've been a freelance since that time. There was a huge push for speed, ease of access, and ease of use over security. Is that still a bugaboo? It is, and I include collaboration in that because there are just so many different companies that need to collaborate, either with outside entities, especially in the academic world. And, you know, if you're looking at like the the coronavirus vaccine, et cetera, the collaboration was intense, right? So you're, they need to leverage a technology not only that does not get in the way of the user, does not induce user friction, but technologies in cybersecurity that allow for collaboration regardless of what cloud or other type of platform your collaborators are using. Joseph, where do you see your discipline going into 2025 and beyond or perhaps 
what should corporations be looking at in terms of preparing for 2025 and beyond? Well, really responding to all of our customer requests. That's one of the things about Microsoft that I really enjoy is that we love customer feedback and we don't take it with a grain of salt. We take it very, very seriously and we modify our products and services to meet their needs. If they're currently forced to use a different type of technology because our technology in that space is not keeping up with the functionality and the features that they need, we pour all of our resource into making sure that not only are we meeting SLAs, uh, service level agreements, and that we're meeting the feature functionality requirements of our customers. Unfortunately, Joseph, we are near the end of our time for this podcast, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics you've touched upon or perhaps to uh, contact you, how could they do so? You can find me via the LinkedIn page um, at uh, aka.ms slash securityjwd. And you can also go to the Microsoft Security blog by just searching in Bing or a different type of search engine and, and finding the Microsoft Security blog and keeping up with that blog. Well, Joseph, this has been a fascinating interview, and I hope that uh, perhaps I might be able to call upon you in the future to come back on and uh, visit with us again. Thank you very much. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.